Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15 to 19 is our text. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word this morning that you would give us your spirit so that we would understand what is written. And in having understanding, Father, we know that an uh, understanding wrought by your spirit will lead us to do, to believe and to do what is written. So, Father, we thank you for being at work in our midst. I thank you for being at work in all the homes that are joining us, Lord, I pray that they would be blessed of you and we would give your word appropriate attention and obedience. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So those of you at home who are listening, do your best. I know it's, um, I know it's difficult times and difficult to sit around in your pajamas and pay attention to the preached word. That's a joke. I mean, some of you are, but I imagine not all of you are. Um, grab your Bibles, you know, open to the passage. Children, grab your Bibles, open to the passage, and pay attention as we work through it. Generally, in expository preaching, you try to work through the whole text and, uh, and account for everything in the text as you go. And so it's always helpful to have the Word of God open before you so that you can uh, refer back to it even as I make reference to it. So, um, so uh, give, it, give it your attention in that way. So the Apostle Peter has spent much of his letter uh, to the churches in Asia Minor, that's who he's writing to, preparing those Christians to suffer. Right? He has written to help them understand the meaning of their suffering. And a few weeks ago, you'll remember, we looked at the passage that precedes today's. Peter wrote, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Right? So he's been trying to encourage those in the midst of trials that come about because of their faith in Jesus Christ, that those trials aren't strange things. Normal. Normal things. Persecution is, in fact, what these Christians and what Christians should expect because 
they and we travel in the same path as our Savior, who undoubtedly suffered at the hands of sinful men. Now, though, so, so the whole book's been about that encouragement. Here's what your suffering means. Don't think it's strange. Um, don't, don't think that God is cursing you. You're blessed if you suffer. All those sorts of things he's been saying. And now he has to shift like any good teacher or any good preacher would. Peter has to now deal with misconceptions about, not, uh, about what suffering is and what it should, uh, is not. There is suffering, and there's suffering, right? Uh, not all suffering is equal. Suffering because we commit murder, for example, is not at all like suffering for your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, it, I mean, it's so obvious that it, it barely needs mentioning, right? Suffering because you are a jerk to people, right, is not at all like suffering because you witness to the glory of Jesus Christ. Right? Suffering because you can't get what you want is not at all like suffering because uh, you deny yourself for God. Right? Those are very different things. Um, those categories of things. Some um, We suffer in many ways because of our sins and uh, not because of our faith. So Peter writes, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. In other words, make sure that none of you suffers for doing what is evil. Right? Suffer for your faith, of course, but don't suffer. Don't, don't bring about suffering through your sin. Now, you, you may think you are not susceptible to this kind of mindset, right? The kind of mindset that confuses suffering for one's sins and suffering at the hands of another. But I see people recast their suffering for their sins as suffering for their righteousness all the time. Anybody who's done any counseling sees that all the time, right? I remember counseling a couple over a decade ago the couple was in a terrible situation. Their children, uh, for the most part, were out of control, disobedient to their parents. Sexual sin was rampant in the household. The husband and wife had no affection for one another. And um, I remember sitting down in the first counseling session and opening, uh, and you know, opening up the conversation. The husband. Uh, fairly quickly expressed that his wife would not follow his lead, right? His wife would not follow his lead. And that's the way he saw things, and his wife's submissiveness was the major problem. He expressed that it was miserable having a wife who did not respect him. He was suffering, right? What it took further counseling sessions to coax out was that this man was not at all respectable. Right? He was perpetually angry, he was lazy, he was sexually debauched, right? And I suppose he would even have said that he had to give himself to pornography because his wife would not meet his needs, right? He, in his mind, was suffering at the hands of another, and his behavior was understandable given his victimhood. 
right? He was unable to see that his suffering was as a result of his own sin in that household, right? How, how wonderful it would have been for him to realize that his suffering was not righteous suffering, but it was, it was suffering due to him being an evildoer. Of course, the wife had her own victimhood and, and sins. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Um, but that man thought he was suffering for leading his home. When in fact it was the very opposite. He was suffering because he was an evildoer. And he was not leading his home. So we can all twist situations about like that, can't we? Right? Not, not seeing how our sin has contributed to our suffering, we think of ourselves as persecuted in our own pursuit of righteousness. And you, you think of Adam. Like Adam who, who blamed God for his sin. The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Right, right we, can, we can recast our sin, uh, even as victimhood at the very least, or righteousness at the most. And so the woman who despises her husband, for example, and is a shrew and a nag, day in and day out, can see her hatred toward her husband as a very positive good. Right? So instead of, of seeing her suffering coming about because she's a shrew and a nag and an evildoer, she sees her suffering as the fruit of cosmic, you know, the, the, the gods are against her, cosmic persecution. Uh, she could probably even see it as suffering because of her faith. Right? So the first thing is to understand that we can misperceive our suffering for evildoing as suffering for righteousness. I mean, the obvious statement here is don't commit sin. It's going to lead to suffering and the kind of suffering you do want. But the less obvious thing is we confuse the categories all the time. Right? I remember ministering to another man <clears throat> who had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. He was married, he had three kids. In his manic states, he would visit prostitutes or search for the Holy Grail. That's what he did. He thought he could find the Holy Grail. He flooded his parents' house, and in one very memorable day, it's one of those, there, you know, there's a handful of days in ministry that are so intense and so vivid, you, you never forget them. Um, uh, in, one, in, in that memorable day, I remember he, he virtually destroyed the habitat house that had been given to him and his family in one of these manic states, right? One of the reasons he did that, one of the reasons he started throwing objects through the windows and, and through the walls, and um, one of the reasons he did that was that we as the elders of the church, were holding him accountable for his actions. We were holding him accountable. Rather than viewing him as a victim of a diseased brain entirely, right? we believe there are diseased brains like diseased livers and diseased colons, right? but um, rather than viewing <clears throat> excuse me, him as a victim of a diseased brain entirely, we were teaching him that he was responsible for what he did. He could not just say he was out of his mind and therefore he wasn't, you know, culpable for his actions. 
the day he destroyed his house, he was doing it, and it became very clear to us because we would not take him to be admitted to the psychiatric ward at the local hospital. He wanted, um, he wanted to be at the psych ward so that he could shirk all of his responsibilities, right? Which is his wife and children. He wanted a vacation in the psych ward. Was, I know that's crazy in and of itself, but that was his escape. That man recast all of his actions as righteous indignation against us meanies who viewed what he was doing as sin. So rather than viewing the situation rightly, that he was suffering because of what he had done and his own sin, he twisted it up in his head to view it as persecution at the hands of those who just didn't understand him. Right? I spent years ministering to that man, and very seldom did I ever see him have an ounce of critical self-awareness. I remember him asking me one morning over breakfast. So when scripture says that a man who doesn't provide for his own household is worse than an unbeliever, does it really mean that a man who doesn't provide for his own household is worse than an unbeliever? <laughs> and I was like, well, it's, what does it say? Um, it was inconceivable to him that God would hold him accountable for his, his failures in that area. Inconceivable. Right, so one, one of the sins of man is his incredible ability to recast his own sins as righteousness. We justify ourselves even when we suffer as an evildoer. Right? Let me also say this about verse 15. Um, we understand what, what Peter means when he says murderer. We understand what Peter means when he says thief. We understand what he means when he broadens that out and just says evildoer, those engaged in evil. But then notice the last item in Peter's list, a troublesome meddler. Don't suffer for being a troublesome meddler. Peter says, make sure none of you suffers as a troublesome meddler. Are you aware that, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go somewhere where um, I'm rebuking myself and I'll make some of you uncomfortable as well. Are you aware that many of the men who protest outside abortion clinics film and post their work on Facebook or YouTube? Right? Every time they go out, they film and post their interactions. Um, they very seldom post anything showing them compassionate toward babies um, and babies about to be slaughtered. What they do often post about is their interaction with passersby or better yet, their interaction with the police. Right? These, these are the same men who can see no good in the government's attempts to protect life by their COVID-19 response. And I have to say that many, not all, but many of these men like to show the world how they are persecuted for their efforts. They have to broadcast how they are persecuted for their efforts. One man has grown his reputation by driving what he calls the truth van. Van with uh, graphic pictures of aborted babies attached to the exterior. 
He used to, I know him because he used to come out to the Greenville abortion clinic. He was a student at BJU. And, um, and he's posted a number of videos of himself being exhorted by the police to remove himself from protests outside of clinics because of, of governor's executive orders in response to COVID-19, right? He, along with various other men I've seen on my Facebook feed, come close to having a martyr complex. They do, though, see their suffering as due to their righteous pursuits of the abolition of abortion. But so much of what they do smacks of vanity. It has to be broadcast. And merely being a troublesome meddler, right? Merely being a troublesome meddler. Everything to them is black and white. They have little understanding of what a what authority our governing authorities actually have, and little willingness to be anything but doctrinaire, right? In some cases, more so than for their witness for Jesus Christ and his righteousness, they suffer merely for being troublesome meddlers. I think many of them want to be arrested so that they can have a Facebook video that goes viral. You know, you may think I'm unkind in saying that, but I do believe in the depravity of man. Right? I do believe in the depravity of man. I do believe that when Christians are... Mo- that that there, there are many times when Christians, including myself, and especially myself, are motiv- motivated by vanity and pride. Vanity and pride. Right? And so, literally, the Greek here for troublesome meddler means one who oversees others' affairs. One who oversees others' affairs. Or one who meddles in things alien to his calling. Now, think about that for a second. One who meddles in things that aren't his business. Um, Many of the men in the abolitionist movement are troublesome meddlers who will not try to understand the difficulties of governing a free people. Okay? There I said it. This does not mean at all that I think work outside abortion clinics should should end or that we shouldn't go to the state capitol and say, this is evil, You're, you're, you're pronouncing that an evil is good. Stop. I don't think any of that should end, not at all. Um, What it does mean is that Christians need to be careful that they are not recasting their suffering for being a troublesome meddler as righteousness. Okay, almost all protest of Christians can be done without being breathless and belligerent. In fact, all Christians should protest as if God is sovereign and not be breathless and belligerent. And why, why can Christians protest in a calm manner? They can because we leave room for God's vengeance. Right? He will repay. And it will be much sweeter when he repays than if we try to pay. Right? There will come a time when the ledger of God's justice is reconciled and it will not go well for the wicked. 
right? Troublesome meddlers think that they are the dispensers of justice. They need to remember Peter's words in his second letter. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now moving on to verse 16. Rather than suffering for our sin, we are to suffer for our faith. Uh, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So the man, the woman, or the child who is made to suffer merely because he is a Christian, a Christian who will not renounce his Savior even when the consequences uh, may be the loss of job or the loss of respectability or even the loss of life, that, that man, woman, or child is not to be ashamed. Right? He is to glorify God. YouTube videos are not required. Right? He's to glorify God. Notice that Peter says to these persecuted uh, for their faith that they are not to be ashamed. That is precisely what those who persecute Christians are attempting to make Christians feel. They want them to feel shame for not being as educated and and savvy as they are. They want to rub their noses in their ignorance and foolish hope in a supposedly, you know, resurrected man. Scripture says, don't be ashamed. Jesus was a man despised and forsaken. Don't be ashamed as your path resembles his, right? God is pleased with you. The father's love for his son is unfathomable. And when the father sees You loving his son and following his path, he's pleased. He is pleased. And to be pleasing to God is the goal. That's the goal of our lives, to be pleasing to God. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And when one of us suffers for our faith, you know, as a church, when we see one one of our members suffering for their faith, we should rally around that brother or sister and honor him and provide for him as a church, if need be. Now, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, what are we getting into in this verse? What the Apostle Peter is saying is sort of lost on evangelicals today. God, and and this is what he's saying, God scourges his own children. That's what it's saying. God scourges his own children. What we suffer is rightly and only properly said to come from his sovereign hand if we suffer as Christians. Uh, This suffering, Peter says, is God's judgment on the church. It's his judgment, right? It is hard, it is painful, but it is purposeful. Here's here's what Calvin says on this verse. He says, this necessity, he says, awaits the whole church of God, not only to be subject to the common miseries of men, right? We suffer in the body, we get sick, we get ill, but especially and mainly to be chastised by the hand of God. 
then with more submission ought persecutions for Christ to be endured. For except we desire to be blotted out from the number of the faithful, we must submit our backs to the scourges of God. We must submit our backs to be flogged by God himself. In other words, what would you rather have? No persecutions and no attention from God or persecutions and the understanding that God intends those very persecutions for our good. Right? Many people would just, I mean, many, if they're offered that choice, would say, well, I'll just take no suffering. That's what I want. And let me be at ease during my life. I'll take not having to give up my livelihood, not having to give up my property and life for Jesus Christ. Just give me peace for the 80 years I have in this life. Um, like David in the last verse of Psalm 39, they say, they say to God, turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Just let me alone. Is that what we would rather have in our lives? Ease and comfort in a God who is distant and uninvolved and turned away? in our discipline, but, but you know what that would mean. That would mean that you are not his, his children and you are not members of his household where judgment begins. Hebrews 12, 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Not once has God promised to his children an easy path to paradise. He's promised them paradise. But he does not promise them an easy path to paradise. He's promised, you know, he, the eternal Sabbath comes, but the road to the eternal Sabbath is as twisted and difficult and perilous as that described to us by, by Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress. Our roads will be the same as Pilgrim's, very difficult. C.S. Lewis calls difficulties the things, we, the things that we, we suffer at the hands of God blockades on the road to hell. And uh, Luther said, I never knew the meaning of God's word until I came into affliction. John 15, Jesus teaches us about the pruning God does to us for our good. He says, I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it, so that it may bear more fruit. Pruning, cutting the branches, scourging his children so that they bear more fruit. That is especially true when the pruning of God, the judgment of God, comes to us simply by virtue of being a member of his household, of being a Christian. How sad it is, then, that the church has no, no concept of this today. The church today thinks that following Christ means that in every way our lives will improve if we follow Jesus. Right? The church today has no concept that God scourges his sons, that God holds his children to his standard. 
right? And that he disciplines. And, and this is because, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons we don't conceive of God this way is we project upon him our lack of practicing discipline with our own children, the own members of our own household. Right? Discipline is disparaged today. And so just as fathers won't discipline their children because they think that somehow is love, we expect that God will not discipline his children because that somehow wouldn't be love if he did that. Right? But scripture militates against that view. God's attention and his discipline begins with his children. In fact, it, it is, we could almost say it's exclusive. We, we, could easily say it's exclusively on his children. God's attention is discipline begins with his children, as we should with our own, as should the elders with their flock. When our ministry becomes more about casting judgments, get this on the world, and less about judging the household of God, well, then we've become Pharisees. Right? That's what the Pharisees did. They judged everybody else. They held everybody else to standards and left themselves alone and diminished their own standards so that they could keep their petty little laws like like, uh, tithing mint. Again, Calvin comes in and he says this on this verse in his commentary, the complaints of the godly are that the wicked pass their life in continual pleasures. And delight themselves with wine and the harp. And at length descend without pains in an instant into the grave. That fatness covers their eyes. That they are exempt from troubles. That they securely and joyfully spend their life looking down with contempt on others. So that they dare to set their mouth against heaven. In short, God so regulates his judgments in this world. Listen to that. He regulates his judgments in this world that he fattens the wicked for the day of slaughter. He therefore passes by their many sins and as it were, connives at them. In the meantime, he restores by correction his own children for whom he has a care to the right way whenever they depart from it. The wicked are being fattened up for the slaughter by just accumulating sins without consequence, accumulating and accumulating sins. And then, and then the Christian, the Christian, any time he, he strays from the word of God and any time we go our own way, God comes in and scourges him, disciplines him, doesn't let him get away with what he's done. It's the kindness of God. Right? That he cares for you. It's a kindness of God that he doesn't just let you fatten up for the slaughter on the final day. That's the kindness of God that he would scourge you as a father. If it is true that the scourges of God fall upon his own beloved children, then think of what that means for those who do not believe. Peter asks, if the judgment of God begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? It's a hypothetical question. He doesn't offer an answer because the answer is so obvious. 
Right? If God does not delight to see unrighteousness in his own children who love Jesus and receive mercy through Jesus, if they are with difficulty saved, then those who do not know Jesus will be dashed to pieces in one moment at the end of the ages. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Though it may seem like the godless do not have any troubles, right? And, and it does seem like that in this world. No man escapes God's hand with impunity. Their discipline will not be more momentary light affliction. Rather, it will be eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Momentary light affliction. Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So dear Christian, do you groan under the discipline of the Lord? Do you think that is too much, that he would require you to go through difficulties in this life because you claim the name of Christ? Do you whine about God's attention? Well, it could be different. It could be that he would give you no attention in this life and then eternal discipline. In the next. Eternal discipline, eternal tension. And the eternal tension would be yours because you had rejected his son. He will not be happy with you. He will, he will never be happy with you in that case. He will joyfully vindicate the glory of his son by eternally disciplining you where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. And so in getting our heads wrapped around the fact that God's grace is evident in his judgment of the household of God, Peter concludes, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls. Love the way that's, that's said, entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In other words, we don't just passively endure our suffering, but we, we trust in God. We trust that God, the creator, and we trust that he is actively guarding us, right? That he is putting a hedge about us. As we do that, as we see God at work and know his discipline, we're then motivated to do what is right. We aren't just resigned to suffer as a Christian. We're actively entrusting our souls to God as we do what is right. We don't just endure. We trust God and take him at his word, that he has, he has covenanted never to leave us or forsake us, and that he is going to deliver us from every difficulty, from every fiery trial that comes along. He, he's not our enemy. But he's going to prove to be an enemy to all those who persecute us for our faith in Jesus Christ. Right, so finally, understanding God's work in this way allows us very simply to do what is right. We may even, we may even love our enemies. Because though our five, you know, though our, our our pride may fight against us. We, 
we've entrusted our souls to Christ. We've entrusted our souls to Christ. We can rest. We can just, we can, we don't, we don't have to be undignified at any moment in our lives because we've entrusted our souls to Christ. We may never use our suffering as a reason to do evil. Entrust your souls to God and do good to all men. Pure and simple. Entrust your soul to God, to Christ, and do good to all men. Amen?